SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. It is 1 p.m. on the East Coast. Guy Adami joined by Elizabeth Young. That would, of course, be EY of SoFi. We have a lot to talk about. Oh, gosh. We have a lot to talk about. I mean, the first half of this show needs to be about You know what we're going to talk. Yes. And save that portion. <laughs> by the way, this is Market Call, oh, uh, right. as I mentioned. And okay. we have, we're, going to take your, we're going to take your questions, the whole rigmarole. But this morning, I was watching um, the Squawk Box or one of those shows. Uh-huh. And yeah, they're at, call it Squawk and Friends. Squawk and Friends. Uh-huh. And they're out there in Switzerland, the Davos. Correct. And they were interviewing the outgoing CEO and the incoming CEO of a firm. Uh-huh. Now you say, oh, guy, please. And of course, it would be, it used to be called Ernst & Young, but now it's called EY. Uh-huh. And I'm saying to myself, <laughs> I don't know. This is just me. And we love Anthony Noto, and you're not going anywhere. I want to be crystal clear, but it wouldn't be brilliant of them to hire you, EY, to run EY. I I mean, mean, maybe. No, it would be genius. Yeah, and because it'd be a good branding move. A hundred percent. I don't know that it would be a good leadership move. Well, I disagree with that portion, (laughs) but it would create such a buzz around the brand. Okay. EY is running EY. It just dawned on me. Yep. The it's other like, thing that it's one of those catchy things people would never forget. They'd never forget it uh-huh. because you are now e- yeah. you're EY from SoFi. Yeah. But if you were EY from EY, <laughs> anyway, number one. Number two, the last time that you and I spoke, uh-huh. the Packers of Green Bay uh-huh. were in a playoff game. We talked about Wild that. Card. They beat the Bears. They got themselves in. We talked about how Jordan Love was playing as well as any quarterback the second half of the season in the NFL. Uh-huh. And we thought that they had, as they say, a fighter's chance, a puncher's chance. Uh-huh. Not only did they have a chance, they beat the shit out of the Cowboys in Dallas. Sure did. They've won more games in Dallas in the playoffs than the Cowboys have. <laughs> now, I am happy about that because I think Mike McCarthy is a an awful head coach, number yeah, one. He used he to was, be ours. I, yeah. Well, it's going to say. I know Mike McCarthy but he had well. Great, he had some great teams. He won one Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. Uh-huh. That's, I don't know. I uh-huh. think they should have been more. And the fact that the Packers, without Aaron Rodgers, beat the McCarthy-led Cowboys, you must just be on cloud nine. I mean, youngest team in the NFL. Yes. First seven seed to ever win a playoff game. Tremendous. I mean, that in and of itself is impressive, but to do it as the youngest team in the NFL with Jordan Love, his first full season, Packer fans, we didn't have high expectations for the season. Not that we were negative on the team. We're still behind him 100%, but we didn't have high expectations. We needed to rebuild. This was going to be a transition year. Look at us. Transitioned transitioned about four games in, and here we are. Well, that's the point. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, the Packers got off this. They didn't look particularly uh, awe-inspiring. Right. But again, the back half of the season, they put it all together. That's when you want to be playing your best football. So congratulations. I'm not going to ask you what do you think about this weekend, because now as we uh, say, you're in it for now. It's house money. Yeah, you're totally. playing with this is, house We're on borrowed money. time. We're well, on- not, not, I want to say borrowed <laughs> time. I mean, why not at this point? Yeah, the, the Niners are. I think. I think head and shoulders. But 
you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays yeah. out. Well, you know, you're passionate about a team. I watched uh, the recording of Matt LaFleur's. Of course you did. His his locker room speech after the game. How many you know, times tells did you watch it? You... Only one. Only one. Okay. But I cried. <laughs> well, that's, that's problematic. I mean, it's one thing to get emotional, but. Half oh, it's just so good. Or, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so play in the Niners. I, I might be wrong on this, so I'm sure one of our viewers will correct me if I am. We have played the Niners in the playoffs maybe more than any other team uh, probably in the playoffs. And I think we've lost the last four times that we've right. played them. So it's either it's our time to win finally, or this is something that's going to just fight us. Look, into I'll, it. I'll say this. I am one of these people. I think football is a game where you want continuity. I mm -hmm. hate the breaks in between. I actually think it's a disservice. I understand why you play to get that first round by you're the best team in your conference. I get it. Mm -hmm. but when you're sitting around, I don't know. I mean, bad things can happen. So yeah. Packers are flying high right now. Sure are. I'm riding that coattail all should. the way through. And it. you will be locked before we get. I, I'm sorry, Amanda. <laughs> We're getting scolded. Before we get. Before we get. <laughs> will you be? Where will you be watching the game? Um. Well, I'm actually going to be on vacation, so I probably will be streaming it from. Yeah, Some beach somewhere. I, I, kind of. Yeah. Look I'm going you, on a you, yoga retreat. You, pardon me. <laughs> We should just move on. <laughs> anyway, so today in the like S and P five hundred. Yes. Well, let's go to the rundown. Okay. <laughs> By the way, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's one of the like last year the Giants got into players. I didn't expect that. Yeah. Then they won in Minnesota. I didn't expect that. And then the Eagles kicked their ass. But uh -huh. it was fun while it lasted. Yeah. I get a feeling though. I I don't think the I think the Packers are going to quit themselves. Well, anyway, bit of a data dump here. Retail sales, home builder sentiment. Elizabeth can speak to both those things. Sure I will tell you, the retail sales came in. I don't know if the word is I'll use hot. I think that's one of the reasons it yields went higher. Home builder sentiment is an entirely different kettle of fish. We'll see. Jamie Diamond's out there in Davos as well. And he's making, again, he is basically reiterating or double downing on a lot of the things that he's been talking about for the last 18 months. The powerful forces that could potentially impact the U.S. economy. The market breath doesn't stink. I mean, that's just, that's sort of cute. That's Amanda yeah. wearing her CNBC hat. She just had to do that. And then, of course, when it's Wednesday, if it's Elizabeth's here, we're going to do a little Q&A as well at the end. There you go. So let's take a look at some of the things. First of all, let's take a look at the S&P chart, because why not? If you go back over the last couple of years, and we've talked about this, we traded up to and seemingly, again, seemingly have stalled at pretty important levels. So that's one level we can look at. You see where the moving average is. If we're to look at a longer term chart and see that prior high back in 2021, you will see that, again, we traded up to and seemingly have given it up a bit in terms of the prior high and the levels we traded at now. We have talked with Carter Worth a number of times about now all the downside gaps in the chart. You can see it here. Longer term chart will point that out. But just in terms of what the market's done late last year into this year. Any thoughts on the S&P? Well, I mean, I would even take it back into the beginning of 2022. And I, I put this in my note for tomorrow, a chart, which I didn't share with you guys. It's a pretty straightforward chart. Long road back for the S&P. If you fell asleep mm -hmm. in the beginning of January 2022 and woke up today, it's like nothing happened. That's right. We're in the same spot. And some people might call that a lost two years. I don't think it was a lost two years. There was money to be made. There were also things to protect against, particularly in 2022. But it's one of the most frustrating charts as an investor where you spend so much time over the last two years knowing everything that's happened, all the different surprises that have occurred to seemingly go nowhere. 
I think the moving average comes in. That's a 200 day. I think it comes in around 4,100 each day. That will get a t- you know one tick higher in terms of time erosion. 4,100 is obviously let's just call it 600 ish points from where we currently are. That's about a 15 ish percent move. That's not out of the realm of possibility. And mm-hmm. if you go back and look, you will see that historically we do check back down to the moving average. And anytime we get to these sort of standard deviations away from that, it's one of those things that seemingly has a bullseye on it. So just keep an eye on that chart. I think it's important. I'll talk to Carter about it tomorrow. Let's look at our first slide because this is fun. I love when people, I mean, look at this slide because this is this is typical. You know, you have like 18 bags in your hands. <laughs> I mean, she probably bought shit she doesn't need. Men are guilty of the same thing. You see those cats there just sort of chatting with each other. One of those dudes is clearly some Wall Street tool because he's got the, what do they call those things? The vest? vest the, the vest, The sleeveless yeah. vest. That's he like the Wall Street bag uniform. too. 100%. They're mm-hmm. waiting for somebody. Maybe they're waiting for their Uber. None of that's the point. <laughs> it's the retail sales that came out today. And I know you can opine on this as well. Yep. Came in stronger than expected, especially month over month. And I mean, this is always an important print because it's about the consumer. It shows how strong the consumer is and how willing they are to spend. Just because they're spending on retail sales doesn't necessarily mean they have the money Mm -hmm. to spend on retail sales. But in any event, they're still doing it. And the reality is consumers will keep spending as long as they feel employed and confident in the labor market. There haven't been cracks in the labor market as of yet. In fact, we thought maybe some of those cracks were forming and then we got a stronger report than we expected the last month or so. So here we are again in this place of relying on the consumer Mm -hmm. and still getting almost confirmation that the consumer is going to continue dragging this on. And that's okay. But what happened on the heels of it was that yields popped higher. You've got, I think the 10 year was up to at least 10 basis points at one point yields popped higher and we've got stocks down. Now I've talked about this relationship before, even if stocks are done, I don't like a drawdown, but I like it when things work the way that they should, when relationships work the way that they should. So if yields go up, it should pressure valuations, especially if we were at a point where we were starting to feel a little frothy. And if that point had been driven by yields coming down. So when they reverse course, this is rational market behavior. And I think that that's okay, especially after such a strong rally. Well, this is theoretically where yields should stall to the upside. I mean, if you just, you know, we've done a little bit, we obviously had a huge sell-off. We've bounced back a little in terms of yields. I mean, if this trajectory continues, this should be a level that we stall. By the way, I am one of these people. I never thought 10-year yields were going to 3.8%. I want to be Hmm. crystal clear. I thought maybe four and a quarter. Obviously, that was off by a considerable amount. But here we are now, back around sort of, it's called 4.05, 4.1. We're sort of sideways action. You know, I still think that inflation is a problem. And when you see this retail sales come out, you realize, and this is something I've talked about forever on Fast Money and our different shows, never underestimate the U.S. consumers want, want to spend. They will spend yep. in just about any circumstance that I can think of unless something happens. And historically, if you go back and look over the last few years, they get scared when there's some sort of market event, when the evening news leads with there was a big move lower in the stock market. Then people take notice because, and again, my opinion, they say to themselves, oh, my God, what's happening? Should I be going to Starbucks? Should I be going on that yoga retreat or anything in between? <laughs> because there's a lot in between. We have not obviously had a market event. We've had a couple of one, two-day sell-offs, but nothing of the magnitude to scare people. But that's when people get concerned. And yeah. when consumer spending stops on a dime, 
that's when things start to move um, at a very quick pace in terms of the market and some other factors as well. Well, it's when it hits mainstream media, which is exactly what you're saying. And when you start to get questions from your family members who are completely removed from finance about whether or not they should sell their stocks, the same way that you start to get questions from your family members about whether or not they should buy a stock called NVIDIA mm-hmm. or whatever they were calling mm-hmm. it, right? right? And then you know that we're getting a little toppy. Why do they spell it so... Right. And yeah, I, how, I mean, where, is it missing a vowel right, somewhere? A- I'd like to buy a vowel. <laughs> so it, I think that's where we would maybe get to. Yeah. We're not there today, right? These moves, even though those of us that watch the market every day feel like it's been a really rough start to the year and the market can't quite get out of its own way, can't come off the mat. It's sort of in this purgatory chopping sideways. Most people have not heard anything about it because there hasn't really been an event. There hasn't been anything surprising on the upside or the downside. Mm-hmm. There's not much to talk about. It's just been a grind. If we could pull up a VIX chart, and I don't want to make a big deal out of it yet. However, you see the VIX where it currently is trading. Amanda and Timmy and or Jacob can pull this up. That is an outsized move to the upside in terms of just through the scope of what's happening today. Today isn't a catastrophic day by any way, you know, stretch of the imagination. Yet you're seeing a move in the VIX that sort of says something else is afoot. Now, I just want to point that out because, again, we haven't seen moves of this magnitude on what I would still say is a rather benign market day in quite some time. So we'll see if the VIX is telling a story. And there are a lot of people that believe as we get towards the end of the month, all that put protection, all that whatever that was in place it's going to sort of go by the wayside, and then the market's going to be left to its own devices. So I don't want to be an alarmist here. I just want to point out that you're seeing something in the VIX today that we haven't seen on what have been pretty benign market days, Elizabeth. Well, and and where is the VIX? I'm trying to pull it up. It's like 14 today, mm-hmm. something like that. But it's got down to 11, 10, mm-hmm. and, and some of its lows are lower than that even. I think we've just gotten accustomed to a low VIX and we no longer talk about it very much because it doesn't tell that interesting of a story at those levels. The thing about the VIX is that by the time we're talking about it, if there is a spike, by the time you're talking about the spike, the spike is over. That's, right? that's exactly right. It happens right. so fast. It's not one of those, it's not even an asset. It's not one of those indexes that stays at a certain level or trends necessarily in a direction. It spikes and it falls and then sort of sits at its at its normal place. It's just that this particular environment, and I think you probably would agree with this, this particular environment has artificially held the VIX down. And I, th- I think we still don't know what those zero days to expiration options have done to anything, but this environment has held the VIX down. Low interest rates held the VIX down, but now we've got a period of time where we expect to be saved if anything goes wrong, and that has kept the VIX pretty low as well. I agree with that. I think one of the many unintended consequences of you know central banks' largesse has been is a dampened volatility. And quite frankly, you know you can see it right here. Outside of a couple moves higher in 2022, the VIX has been relatively tame. And I think with these zero data expiry options, which I cannot speak intelligently about, but my sense is that probably has a dampening effect as well. Let's look at the XRT because again. We talk, we've talked the retail. We might as well throw the XRT chart up just to take a look. It appears to be, again, rolling over a bit. Again, this is something that does traverse the moving average, and the moving average has effectively been flatlining now for quite some time, which makes sense if you think about the highs and the lows we've seen. Well, we just made a high. I don't think it's unreasonable to think we could test the moving average again, and I'm trying to look at the moving average where it comes in. And it's probably another 8 to 10% lower from here. So 
I just want to throw that out there because, again, this is a chart from October until late last year into December, you know, from a 52-week low-ish mm-hmm. to a 52-week high in a very short period of time, Elizabeth. One thing that I would point out, and it shows in that little call-out box, you've got one stock there that's green, the rest are red. Mm-hmm. All retail stocks are not created equal, and there are going to be names in the retail space. Costco is a good example. That's somewhere that people go to try to save money, right? You buy in bulk, and I queue up your toilet paper. Well, I mean, (laughs) I I was going to bring that up, but you know, the 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 the, basically the definition of wishful thinking (laughs) is when you go to the Costco and you see the two geriatrics Uh in their little cart, you know, the electric motor scooter thing. (laughs) And they have like, you know, 60 rolls of toilet paper. I mean, come on, guys, really? I mean, they <laughs> should be buying it one by viewers. one. But anyway, please I teed continue. that one up for well, him too easily. But it is true. But You've seen that. It, I ha- Well, I don't have a Costco membership. Oh, okay. But anyway. You know what I'm talking about. That, that's something that you, you go and you try, you're trying to save money. You're trying to be more efficient, right? You're trying to bring down unit costs. Some of the other names on this list, and these are obviously just examples. These are completely discretionary items. Abercrombie & Fitch. Bath and Body Works, right? You can you can go to the drugstore and get soap and lotion. You don't need to go to Bath and Body mm-hmm. Works, or you can go to Bath and Body Works and pay up for the same soap and lotion that smells like apples. But it's you have to think about retail not just as this big homogenous group. And I think there is going to be separation. I think this will be the year of separation within categories. Last year was obviously the year of six to seven big names. This year, I think, will be the year of separation under the surface in different categories. And that's something to watch. We're going to take a look at the XOI. I want to take a look at it real quick because this is discretionary. Amanda's asked me not to, but I pointed out because obviously <laughs> Tesla is a pretty large component of this. So you see that chart, you see the gaps to the downside. And I, this is not an Elon Musk grant by any stretch, but if we could put a longer term Tesla chart up, we've been talking about this pennant formation that the stock's been in for quite some time. It's been in a very long downtrend. It's been in a very short uptrend. That uptrend now has been broken to the downside. And I think there's a little bit of trouble here. And you can see it right there in Tesla. If you can do longer term, Amanda, you'll see what I'm talking about. Go back to sort of, yeah. So there you go. I mean, you can see that downtrend and you can see the uptrend we've been in. I think the uptrend has been violated to the downside. That's going to be interesting because obviously it's a large component of the CTF. Now go back to the XLY real quick and you'll see like the S&P, there are a number of gaps on the downside that have yet to be filled. So we created these gaps on sort of those knee-jerk moves higher. Well, stands to reason that maybe we're going to fill those gaps. Just something to think about in terms of the XOY and the components thereof. Obviously, Amazon, Tesla, Home Depot, McDonald's. Let's go to your tweet because I love it when you get out there on the Twitter. You have your pretty red... it's called X now. Twitter. Okay. I, I'm just letting you know. So the the red blouse you have, I mean, it's, it's you look good in red, <laughs> by the way. The dress. dress. Well, it's hard to ascertain that from the picture. Sure. But let's take a look at your tweet. Home builder sentiment improved to an index value of 44 above the consensus of 39. Neutral is 50. So mortgage rates remain the name of the game here. Recent sentiment trough came once rates hit 8%. This is all true stuff. But talk to me about the chart that you brought forth underneath it, because that obviously tells a story as well. Yeah. So if you look at sentiment, I mean, it's still in, we don't, this isn't necessarily called contraction territory, but it's still not even at neutral. So it's still low, but not nearly as low as it was. If you think about mortgage rates, I'm looking at a longer term chart of mortgage rates. If we can pull it up, if we can't, it's totally fine. But where mortgage rates were before the beginning of 2022. So through most of 2021 and end of 2021, mortgage rates down near 3%. 
And then obviously skyrocketed. We hit that peak of 8% mm-hmm. in October of last year. They're down 100 basis points since then. We're sitting right around 7%. It's all relative. Compared to 8%, 7% sounds great. And suddenly home builder sentiment is excited again. People are coming out of the woodwork to buy homes because it feels like they're getting a deal compared to 8%. But realistically, mortgage rates are 400 basis mm-hmm. points higher than they were just a couple of years ago. So that's why you still have this sort of contradiction of sentiment is is good in the short term because of this move down. But I still think over the longer term period, buying a house now, you're setting yourself up to have to refinance it at the very least, mm-hmm. right? And prices haven't come down yet. But I think the real risk here, and this is a broader risk in the economy, is that the perception of rates being more attractive, so affordability getting better, is going to bring people off the sidelines where the, the market had been frozen going to bring people off the sidelines to buy those houses that they've been waiting to buy, which will cause home prices to stay where they are or even go up a little bit at the exact time that we want inflation to continue cooling. We want things to slow down. It runs the risk of another element in the inflation game driving a reacceleration. The people that refied a couple of years ago, and it's a a lot of people out there somewhere between three and a half percent and lower into long-term mortgages even with eight to seven, it's not going to get them off the fence. Right. Seven to six probably is not. So right. they're locked in. I mean, whether or not they want to be in their homes, that mortgage rate is an asset for them. Mm-hmm. The only, re- the again, only. One of the main reasons these people would get off that fence if they start losing their jobs, then that creates a whole different environment, right? So there are a lot of factors at work here. There's still a supply-demand imbalance without question. We've been talking about that for a long time, which is one of the reasons I think collectively we like the home builders 22 into 23, and that made a lot of sense. You what one has to wonder what is it going to dynamic going to be if the unemployment rate starts ticking up and those people that have that asset are forced to liquidate that asset. That's when things yeah. I think get interesting. Now you're going to say, "So what are you talking about, guy? The unemployment rate is still three seven. It's not moving." You're right. However, a lot of that has been government jobs. The revisions have been now ten months in a row. Revisions have been to the negative side. At some point, this all sort of factors into the equation, I think. And we've seen it, again, a swath of different industries where there have been layoffs. So I'm not wishing for a higher unemployment, but what I will tell you is part of the equation for the Federal Reserve is for that unemployment rate to go higher. It's not there yet, but when it starts to move, I think it's going to surprise people. Now, I've been saying that since late summer, early fall. And it hasn't happened yet, but it doesn't mean it won't happen EY. That's right. And something that we've talked about before, again, this may not happen because unemployment has stayed quite low and it's it seems to be stuck there, which is a good thing. But when it does start to go up, if that occurs, it goes up fast and it happens and you can't catch it. It goes very, very quickly. You have companies that jump onto, I don't even want to call it a bandwagon because it's not a celebration. But once other companies start to do layoffs, Everybody feels like they're allowed Mm -hmm. to do layoffs. Nobody wants to be first at it. Once that unemployment rate starts to tick up, it moves quickly. To your point about housing and if, if the labor market cracks, and these are all big ifs, if the labor market cracks and people get nervous, I'm not even sure that they're forced to sell the house. There's also an element of people go into delinquency, mm-hmm. right? And and then you mm-hmm. have foreclosures. Now, I don't think that would be anything like 2008, 2009. I know that really spooks people when we start talking about foreclosures. That's not what I'm talking about here. But 
there is a risk that if the labor market cracks and consumer sentiment comes down, people stop spending. They certainly stop buying houses, but they end up stuck in a situation where maybe they bought a house and now they can't necessarily meet that same obligation that they could meet two years ago. So something to watch. Another thing, not necessarily related to housing, but, and and this is sort of anecdotal. I saw this chart a while ago. I'm not going to remember who it's from, but I'll find it at some point for someone. The Google search results, you know how you can track Mm -hmm. what people are searching for? The, The phrase was something like how to get rid of car or how to get out of auto loan had skyrocketed because of used car prices having gone up so much over the last couple of years, people needing to buy a car because we couldn't travel, right? This is all still a shakeout of the pandemic and being underwater on that car loan at a really high rate and how people want to get rid of the car. And somebody jokingly responded, well, you can't really get rid of it, but if you stop making the payment, somebody will come get it, right? But obviously that's just a repossession. So I think that there are risks out there. There is debt out there where consumers are overexposed. I agree with you 100%. I didn't realize that people were searching for that, but that is a great tell as to what sort of the the mindset is for the people on the ground. We mentioned Jamie Dimon. Let's go to his comments. Um, I did watch that this morning. I actually, it looks like fun out there. I've never been to, I've been to Switzerland a number of times. I've never been to either. Is that right? No. Well, maybe we should Looking do like for a, an invite to Davos. A risk though. reversal Davos table Yeah, next I'm year. available next well, year. You'll be coming. Anyway, <laughs> he's warned, again, he, the things that he's been talking about, the things that have concerned him, he hasn't backed off at all. No. And I think, I don't want to say he's sort of, you know, doubling up here or double, but He's clearly reiterating a lot of the things that the market participants are looking past because the S&P has gone up in a straight line since October. Now, I think he understands that as well, but his cons- nothing has happened to assuage his concerns. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't even say he's doubling down. I think he's just been consistent and he's refusing Fair. to you know what? get You're swayed right. by the wind, right? And and by other people changing their views and by other banks basically coming out and saying that they believe what the Fed is saying, that sort of thing. I think he's just being consistent in his concerns because the concerns haven't gone away. And I would almost compare it to something that Jeffrey Gunlock says all the time about how things just take longer than we expect. And they always take longer than we expect because we're impatient. It doesn't mean they're never going to happen, but it is going to feel like it's moving very, very slowly if it's not happening yet. And maybe that's where Jamie Dimon is, where nothing has changed, right? It's still, we're still in the same situation. He's still concerned about the same things he was. Just because it, has, it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to. Market breath was, and by the way, I agree with you. I, you get impatient. When you look at something all day long, every day, and you have a view as I do, and I think you do as well, you, you, the anticipation of it coming to fruition with each passing day just grows and grows and grows. But mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, I lack the patience. It doesn't mean there was a great movie, and I don't mean to go down this rabbit hole necessarily, but it was Force 10 from Navarone. Mm. Harrison Ford was in this movie, and he was tasked with blowing up a bridge, blah, blah, blah. He realized that he couldn't blow up the bridge, but I think it was David Niven or somebody was also on his squad, Uh and he realized that there was a dam farther upstream that if they took the dam out, the water would come through, it would take the bridge out for them. So they put all the dynamite and stuff, they rigged it, they they detonated it, but nothing happened to the mm-hmm. dam. And Harrison Ford's like, you told me this was going to work. And the explosion uh, genius said, or the demolition genius said, let nature take its course, just give it time. And so the forces started to work. The dam- 
You get what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So Harrison Ford was impatient. I'll play the role of Harrison Ford. Oh, okay. You're playing the role maybe of you know, <laughs> David Niven or Jamie Dunn. You got to be patient. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Anyway, just wanted to throw that yeah. out there. It's a good movie. Go to Blockbuster. Check it out. Uh-huh. Uh, Elizabeth- rewind. Be kind and rewind, though. <laughs> be kind and rewind. And you had to buy yeah. those things, like the little car that you'd put the ticket, because you couldn't rewind it in the actual VCR because somehow that damaged the VCR. Uh-huh. So you would take it out and put it into a device whose sole purpose was to re- <laughs> You remember this rewind. or no? No, anyway, I don't remember that. I do. Market Breath Looks Healthy. my time. This is what you brought forth. These are your slides. Let's take a look. Yes, Market Breath Looks Healthy. So this, I tweeted this yesterday, I believe, uh, basically just saying, look, we're still in a period where the moving averages, the number of stocks trading above their 50-day and 200-day moving average is promising. You've got those obviously had crept up. They've given a little bit back, but still at an elevated rate. You usually would expect that things feel very overbought when you've got that many stocks that have crept up above their 50 and 200 day moving averages. But by measuring it with the RSI, things aren't incredibly overbought. Only 6% mm-hmm. of issues with an RSI above 70. So we're at this period where we had the big rally. It's still healthy. There isn't anything out there that says we're incredibly overextended. I think that's a lot of why we've had this sideways chop. There needs to be a catalyst for either the upside or the downside. There is neither right now. And you could almost look at this period. This goes back to just understanding that the S&P is at the same level it was right around January 2022. We were, we're at the same level that we were before we started pricing in recession risks. So let's just pretend we've erased all of that. We're back to a point where Recession doesn't seem imminent. We're not sure. It, it's always a risk, but we're not sure whether it's going to come or not. And maybe it's just a clean slate. So we're starting the slate in a decently healthy position, but now we need a better reason to go up further in the form of an expansion, right? The market has not been convinced that we're going to expand, but it seems to be convinced that maybe we're not going to recess. The next, and I agree with it, things can work. You can work off an overbought, oversold condition with time, right? Markets can go sideways and something that appeared oversold becomes sort of neutral. Something that appears to be overbought, same thing happens. And to a certain extent, maybe that's what's happening here, but it's going to be interesting to see how this works itself out. This one is fascinating because it speaks to a 60-40 portfolio, mm-hmm. but what happens on the backside of excess or, you know, when things are not sort of lined up, when you have these sort of standard deviation moves to the upside or downside, what happens? And this chart, I think, again, we can talk about it all you want, but when you see it, I think it speaks volumes. Talk about this. Yeah. So I'm sure everybody knows that for years, everybody was shouting about the 60-40 being dead. We've covered this before. It's covered in my outlook for this year as well. The 60-40 came out of the woodwork and showed its face again and had, a. I think it was November that it was his best month in in a very, very long time. This is a long-term chart of the 60-40 portfolio just to illustrate that it does work and it's not something that dies forever. There will be periods of time when it does fail us. And a lot of times it fails in a big crash. If you have a lot of volatility, there are two things that go up during a big crash, volatility and correlation. If correlation is up, everything falls at the same time and it feels like diversification doesn't work. But if you look over a really long-term period, those gray shaded bars are recessions. You've got the total return of a 60-40. Look at 
even just the last big recession, look at the financial crisis, mm-hmm. right? Obviously very negative, but then look at it pop back up. It does protect better in a drawdown. You do still get participation on the upside. Right now, it looks like we're in a trend where it's moving up again. Diversification should work. So broadly, the 60-40 is back. And then you have to drill down under the surface to figure out where you want your allocation to be within it. And what does it portend, right? I mean, so that's, again, those gray bars are really interesting. That's a chart you should take a look at in your spare time just to sort of say, okay, what was happening in these different periods of time when things seemingly we got, we're out of the woods only to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of it. Okay, mm-hmm. we're going to questions. And if you could pull up uh, Atovia Tavi Costa's, Costa's tweet. Sorry about that. I'm impaling myself on his name. But this is going to sort of go towards Vivek Sunder123 question. Two's tens is close to uninverting mm. thoughts. Now, twos versus thirties, as I'm pointing out here, Apparently, it's just turned positive. I wasn't aware of that. I should be. Point being is, this is something you've said now for 18 months. It's not the inversion. The inversion is sort of the, that's the warning sign. It's Mm -hmm. when things start to go back the other way is when you should be concerned. I want to say twos tens is probably like 28 basis points or so. I don't have it in front of me. I'm probably close. But two's 30s has turned positive. But this is something you've been concerned about, EY. Yeah, well, and yesterday, so... So there was the the shallowest that the inversion got. And I believe that we either touched it or even transcended it at some point intraday yesterday. We got into the low teens. Um, we're at about 26 basis points now. But the shallowest the inversion got was back in October at about 16 basis points. We got to somewhere in the 16s yesterday. So we're knocking on that level right now. And you're right. It's again, it's not it's not the hikes that gets you, it's the cuts. Mm-hmm. It's not the inversion that gets you, it's the re-steepening. And right now, and, and actually for the last probably year or so, it's been confusing what type of re-steepening we're seeing, right? It is bullish for stocks typically when the short end comes down. So if you see the short end come down and the long end stay anchored, that's usually a bullish signal, right? If you see both of them come down, but the short end happens to come down faster, that's actually pretty bearish because mm-hmm. then you've got long-term yields and short-term yields falling. That usually means that the market is scared and expecting to be saved by Fed cuts, both of which have happened in various environments over the last year. So it's not entirely clear by watching how the curve is re-steepening, whether or not this is bullish or bearish for stocks. But the reality is that it is re-steepening. And it's something that once we cross over that zero mark, which right. I think is going to be a really big mental threshold, once we cross over that zero mark is when you have to, it's almost like the clock starts ticking right? Right. on what's going to happen in the market and on whether or not there's going to be a recession. So it may start ticking in the form of 10-year yields, which again, have probably gone up. I understand they went from 5% to 3.8-ish, but they've now rallied. Yields are up 30 basis points or so-ish. So if 10-year yields continue to go higher for whatever reason, I think it's because, again, there are inflationary concerns out there that people are not taking into consideration. Twos will, the tens will catch up with twos. And that's when, to your point, the, start, the clock starts ticking. This is absolutely something that not enough people are paying attention to. More people should, something you've been talking about for a one, while. One last point on that. If and when it does uninvert, the speed with which it does so is going to be something that's important to watch. If it happens because the two year drops like a rock, mm-hmm. that's probably something that doesn't foretell great things for the market. The expectation would be that then the Fed has to come in faster and harder with cutting rates. 
you got to be careful about the speed of it. So you don't want to see the re-steepening shoot up across zero and then just expect that that means we're in the clear. I think that's fair. And that's the market saying, okay, we're going to test the Federal Reserve. You want to play this game? We're going to sort of, we're going to go out on this limb and we're going to test you. We'll see. Fascinating. Matrix of compassion with us every day. Here's the question. If we could throw up an IWM chart, I know we have it. Hmm. Which has farthest to fall in a sell-off? This SPY, the Qs, or the IWM? Thank you. I'll take a shot at this first. I think in order, I think the Qs, number one, the Russell, number two, and then the, the broader market in the form of the SPY, number three. That's how I look at it. But what I'll tell you is, and this is the IWM, we have looked at this chart almost every day for the last year and a half, two years. And what we thought could happen was the Russell in the form of the IWM could trade up to 204. 204 has been a level of resistance for the last year and a half or so. It would fail. Well, seemingly here now at 190, that's exactly what's happened. So I am concerned here because the Russell never sort of, it never reiterated, never galvanized that move in the, in the, in the broader market. The Russell was telling one story, the broader market was telling a much different story. So I don't know how you want to answer that, but that would be my answer. Well, and there's there's obviously not entire overlap between the Russell 2000 and the rest of the S&P 500. But if you want the S&P 500 to display that broadening out trade and you want the rest of the S&P, so the, the S&P 493, to keep up and close the gap with those big mega cap names, you do also want to see momentum in the small cap space because you need those smaller cap names to hold up. In a period where rates are falling, it makes sense that the Russell would rally. In a period where rates are rising, it makes sense that the Russell would face some headwinds. But this chart, and we talked about this last week too, this chart shows you that it just cannot quite get above that level. And I think it tells the same story that the S&P is telling right now. Okay, so we've maybe erased the imminent recession fear from the pricing, but we certainly have not priced in a new expansion. And small caps do the best in early expansion phase. So even if during 2024, we have another elongated year of late cycle behavior, small caps may struggle in that. Small caps do better after we've had a big flush and we get back out and start moving up again. Mm -hmm. Which we, by the way, I don't think we've seen. So this is you want to look at a couple things. I mean, IWM should be on your radar screen without question. Twos, tens, twos, thirties, whatever, have that up as well. You should also have this. And this is another question we're getting from Starry. Ask Liz, that's you, about China's GDP read. FXI, if we could pull that up. We are now below, last I looked at least when we came on air, we were below 21 and a half. That had been my line in the sand for a while. I have said for a while that I thought we'd go back and test these levels. So you look at that. If you could do a 15-year chart, you can see that this is the level we saw in 0809. FXI is absolutely telling a story here. I don't think it's a particularly good story. Right. And for those out there that think somehow it only matters when things are going well in China, that doesn't matter when things are going poorly in terms of what's happening here, I say think again. Mm -hmm. This is concerning in a word. Yeah. And, and look, it's, it's a confusing thing to talk about because I think emerging markets actually can do okay this year, but it's emerging markets ex China. Mm -hmm. There's too much in the way over there. And the expectations were that China would come back and lead Asia 
into a recovery and that the consumer had made the transition into, or I'm sorry, that the country had made the transition into consumerism and it just has not come to fruition. So you've got underwhelming GDP. I mean, China is still an emerging nation. It should have really strong growth. It should be knocking it out of the park compared to the most developed nation on the planet, which is the US. And that's not really happening. So China still continues to have issues. I'm worried about the property sector in China. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to continue to drag on the overall economy. And because there's so much wrapped up in real estate in China, that it's just a risk I'm not willing to take at this point. Nor should you be. And Alibaba's, if you want to throw up a Baba chart real quick, I mean, this is a stock now since I want to say Halloween of 2021 has been in a significant downtrend. And you can go longer than that if you want. But point being, along the way, we have seen a number of rallies of the magnitude, anywhere from 25 to 50% in this stock. But you see, I mean, it's still a stock that's been upper left, lower right. And that trend will continue until you see a big volume day to the downside where you get news and networks talking about Alibaba and China all day long. And we've seen that a number of times over the years, but we haven't seen it yet. Here's a question from Scott. And this is actually an interesting question. My question would be, if the first rate cut are in 25 basis point increments, would that help the soft landing narrative? Give me one ah. second. I think the soft landing narrative is unemployment is going to stay somewhere between 3.7 and 4%. GDP growth, maybe not as robust as you hope, but we're going to start seeing that GDP growth. We're not going to have I don't know. We're not going to have a credit uh, concern. There's not going to be a credit issue out there. And we're going to, and inflation is going to continue to trend in our favor, which is why we can lower rates. That's the bull case. That's the soft landing. I'm hard pressed to think that's going to happen, but maybe you want to take a stab at this. So to, to try to answer the question more directly, if the first cut is 25 basis points, or if they do it in 25 basis point increments, does that help the soft landing narrative? Um, I think that the easy answer to that is probably yes, because it would give the perception that they're not in a hurry, that they can do it methodically, that they can do it because they're choosing to do it and they're not doing it because there's some kind of panic going on. If they came out and the first cut was 50 or 75 basis points, I think the perception would be some sort of panic or that the Fed knows something that we don't know yet. So yes, it, it would support the narrative that they're cutting because they're choosing to cut in order to normalize policy. Here's the thing. The Fed is never going to forecast for us that a recession is coming. So when they talk about the Fed is saying they'll cut three times this year, that's what the median output is, three times, and GDP growth is going to be 1.4%, and unemployment is going to be, I think, up to four-ish or four and a half, something like that. None of that is suggestive of a recessionary environment. That doesn't mean that at some point the path to get there by December 31st won't feel recessionary. I am not of the mind that they should cut in March. If if data continues as it is, I don't think that they should cut in March. I think that would be a little premature and it would raise the risk of exactly what they don't want to do, which is drive a reacceleration and an overheating and we get a double peak in inflation. So I don't think, and, and this is what Waller said yesterday, I don't think there's any harm in waiting another six weeks, right? You can wait until May. What's the big deal? It's only 25 basis points anyway. So it's going to be more about the perception of why they're cutting and when they're cutting. And the last thing I'll say is this, if the market goes down from this point until that March meeting and they cut 25 basis points, I think the perception is going to be that they're doing it to try to save something or they're doing it to try to prevent 
a further drawdown. So this is all going to be a matter of how it's viewed and what the optics are. Couldn't agree more. Um, this is, I'm not teeing you up with this question, but what are the lesser known macro indicators to watch right now? This is from, I don't know, COVIDBot 2.0. I mean, this is, these names are fantastic. Yeah, well, so this isn't necessarily a macro indicator. I've talked about it before. It's called the near-term forward spread. That's a, it's a market indicator, but it's what the Fed watches. It's their recession watch tool. We talk a lot about the twos, tens inversion uh, or the three-month tenure inversion. They watch the near-term forward spread, which is the three-month rate today versus the three-month rate 18 months from now. That's been inverted for quite some time. So in back in their offices, they talk about that being a recession signal. Something else that you can watch, uh, you usually hear about the headline data, right? You always want to look at things like durable goods under the surface because those are the big ticket items. Those don't usually make as much of a headline. That's something to keep an eye on. Uh, you also want to watch the small business surveys. Surveys obviously are fickle. You got to be careful about taking, putting too much stock in a survey. But the small business surveys, both of employment and of just their outlook, are really important because what people tend to forget is that small businesses employ the majority of Americans. So, how small businesses are feeling about the employment outlook is really, really important and can be a leading indicator. I don't want to play stock market with you, so I'll do it myself. But somebody's asking about JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. I think the question is, can I buy Spirit Airlines? So Amanda, if we can put up a longer term chart, you will see that the lifeline for Spirit came in the form of this potential deal with JetBlue. Obviously, that there's some issues around that now. There's some concerns, probably well-founded concerns, that it's not going to happen because to you know whoever oversees this, it's not going to be particularly customer friendly. These airlines merge. It, it hurts the consumer. I get it. I mean, I've, I flew Spirit Airlines once, and you that did. was probably one time too many. <laughs> I've never really experienced anything quite. I'll tell you what I experienced. It was when People's Express was an airline, which you may not remember, uh -uh. but you didn't get seats. You basically all waited, and then you had this mass rush to get in and hopefully get the window and or aisle seat, oh. and it was effing chaos. And yeah. I think Spirit, to a certain extent, is sort of a 2023-24 version of that. There's a problem, obviously, with this company. This company was not doing well for years. I mean, if you do a longer-term chart, you will see it's been upper left, lower right. Can you buy the stock? It's going to trade probably 15, 20 times normal volume today, down again today, having a horrible day yesterday. If you want to play stock market and say, you know what, maybe we'll get a bounce, as Dan would say, have at it. There's a There's a faction of people out there that think that Bankruptcy might be in the cards here. I, you know, I can't speak intelligently, but that is out there. So again, if you're looking at this for a trade, maybe think the flush is over. You know, knock yourself out. I am not one of those people, Elizabeth. And I'm not looking Speaking for you of to sort of airlines. Mm. Any of my Midwestern cronies out there remember an airline called Midwest Express? Sure. Every seat was supposed to be first class. Sure. And you got warm chocolate chip cookies. Everybody got one warm chocolate chip, or maybe it was two in a pack. But shout out to shout out and rest in peace, Midwest Express and their cookies. You know, there's nothing better than a warm cho chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> but that's when you're, at, you know, in the confines of your home, when you have maybe napkins and stuff, those things get a little messy. Yeah, we got. And then fast. what happens when you, you get thirsty? So maybe yeah. there was a method to their madness. Yeah. If you think about that. I think they gave them to you towards the end of the flight. I don't remember. But anyway, anyway. I, re I remember. I'll remember it forever. Those cookies were good. I want to be respectful of your time because you have things to do. I do. 
and we're going to let you go. I want to thank the audience. We have more questions, but we'll, we'll get to those questions. They're not going anywhere. No. We'll be back tomorrow with Carter Braxtonworth. Hopefully Dan is feeling better, but we will power on regardless. I want to thank the audience. Uh, always interacted. I apologize for starting the show with sports. I know that pisses men off. But I don't apologize. I know, Go nor pack, should though. you. Go pack. <laughs> uh, Rangers won last night. Last two games, it's seemingly getting themselves back where they should be. I know that does mm. not concern you at all. The Knicks played tonight. Uh, I'm not sure where. I think the Nets are in Portland. We'll see what happens there. That's it. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Back tomorrow.